Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew Freeman and Jen Bailey. Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Wenderlich podcast. Welcome to episode 11 for season nine. This episode was recorded on Saturday, the 27th of July, 2019, for broadcast on the 4th of September, 2019. This episode is sponsored by Triple Byte. That's Byte, B-Y-T-E. I'm Drew Freeman, here with my vivacious Season 9 co-host, Jen Bailey. Thanks, Drew. Uh, joining us on this episode is Eric Hellman. Eric works as a freelancing developer, mostly on Android projects, which he has been doing since 2009. He has more than 20 years of experience working as a software engineer on a wide variety of fields and companies. Eric is the author of two books, Android Programming, Pushing the Limits, and Android Recipes, 5th Edition, and also does a lot of teaching and talks at tech conferences. When not writing or writing about code, Eric tends to his very small garden and invests too much time and money in coffee making. In this episode, Eric will be discussing Android concurrency. Then in the second half, Jen will help us understand getting into Android for the novice developer. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks both of you. Thanks. Very nice introduction. So apparently from your Twitter, it, it sums it all up as COBOL, cats, and coffee. Definitely. <laughs> Should I explain on that one? Well, the COBOL, I'm curious if it really came back and helped out around the turn of the uh, the, the, uh, the millennia when we uh, when we had that Y2K panic and all the banks were like, I need a COBOL programmer. Yeah. Actually, no. My interest in COBOL at this level is uh, came much, much later, about uh, two years ago. <laughs> I was working on a, with a client and they had their entire backend, I mean, entire backend in COBOL. Uh, they had some like, newer system in front of that, but the entire core of everything was running a, co- running a COBOL system. Uh, so it sparked my interest, and I started learning about it and re- reading about it, and then bugging all my friends about it who were not interested. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, this also goes back to my dad. My dad was a COBOL developer, so I kind of thought that this would be cool to learn again. And so uh, I, I've been speaking with him about it, and I, I hope that I one day may be doing a talk on this topic, because it's actually interesting i i've only breathed on cobol a little but that was also back during the days when i was taking elective classes in my undergraduate and you know i took uh some fortran i took some vms um but they were elective classes almost as sort of a computer history the, the idea of hearing somebody in 2019 say yeah cobol came of interest to me two years ago <laughs> That's not a phrase I was expecting to hear, ever. That is unusual. Um, In 1998-99, when I went to college, of course, the universities were being asked to teach that. So there were a lot of COBOL and Fortran classes. um, And I missed those. I was a little late. So I started in Java and C++ and Python. But I want to study COBOL so that I understand the jokes. (laughs) The jokes are all in Fortran. (laughs) See? (laughs) That's... I'm missing that part of, of programmer culture. And of course, uh, while we touch on the very important stuff, cats and coffee as well, which sounds like a, a, an interesting uh, coffee house to go to. <laughs> if you watch at any point during, during the season on the YouTube videos, you will definitely see cats going in the background for both Jen and myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I, my wife took the cats and 
took them outdoors right now, so they are they're enjoying the sun. Uh, hopefully, not coming here and climbing on my keyboard. <laughs> can have some consequences. Um, they they like to do that. <laughs> and how many are there? Are there two? They're two so, two small sisters. I, I usually include them in my talks. Have them as like the the, the intro video or something like that. It's people <laughs> people tend to like to look at cats for you know doesn't matter how long. I love the cats in your YouTube talk videos. So is one of them named Lucy, as I recall? <laughs> Correct. She she's <laughs> she's uh, she's. Um, She's the one who will walk across the keyboard here if she gets loose. <laughs> Let us turn to the topic that brings you here to us today, and that is concurrency and async in the Android world. True, yeah. That is uh, one of my favorite topics. It's also the topic that I find most complex, especially for beginners, but also for people who have a lot of experience, even with Android. We still struggle with this. And uh, yeah, that's what I like to talk about. I, I had an interview where somebody asked me, on the interview, do you like doing threaded programming? And I paused and looked at him and said, does anybody like doing threaded programming? Is this a trick question? Because I'll, I'll do it and I'll, I'll, I'll deal with it. <laughs> but, but as for liking it, no, it's, it's, it's sometimes a nightmare. So, so let's ask you this right off the top. Why is concurrency and asynchronous such a challenge? Uh, I think that's like most programming you do, you can find an analogy in the real world. Uh, if there's a UI, you can draw the UI on paper. And if it's a database, you can actually visualize like how the data is stored in the tables and stuff like that. So most part work well. But when it comes to uh, concurrency, asynchronous programming and stuff like that, it's really hard to find a real world analogy that you can like hook onto to, to feel comfortable with the concept. Uh, I noticed this especially when I've been teaching uh, beginners uh, with Android. I've done that a lot. Uh, the thing that almost everyone gets stuck at is how to do uh, stuff in the background, Do how they should handle async stuff, loading data, stuff like that. Do it properly. The simplest, uh, the simplest use cases usually work out. But once they get past like the most basic stuff, people get stuck and they, it gets complicated. So... Yeah, we still haven't solved this in a in a good way for programmers. So, what what are the current solutions that we have to work with on Android? Historically, we we started we had something called async task, and that one it, it worked. It had a lot of flaws, and uh, it got a lot of um, negative feedback. <laughs> Let's call it that. <laughs> is this the the async await? Uh, no, no, no. Async await is coming much later. Uh, so after we had a sync task, Google introduced something called loaders, which was a very complicated API that nobody really understood how it worked. <laughs> uh, and then then came all the Rx stuff, and then came uh, then we got Kotlin, then we got Kotlin coroutines. Uh, but all the while, meanwhile, here people are trying to come up with alternative solutions. Everything from uh, writing event buses for Android or uh, message buses, if you call it like that, uh, using uh, executors and futures in a smart way, or trying to replicate the promise API from JavaScript, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And all of those were, you know, they worked okay, but since they were like third party and not really supported, it wasn't anything standardized. It never catched on, really. Uh, I, do, I do still find a lot of code bases where they have their homebrewed event bus going. Uh, the first time we actually came further to making it easier was with Rx Java, but that carries some consequences <laughs> as well. So uh, 
And now we have Kotlin coroutines, which is uh, what you said, async await. Uh, we have we have that the concept of async await there. All right. So let's let's back up and take a look at some of these things. Let's start with the 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 first async. Yeah. And can you give us like a a couple of thousand feet view of how that system works? Yeah. Basically, you you extended the class. Uh, the class was called async task. Uh, you you defined what its input was, uh, what the output was. Uh, and then you called start on it. And this one then started a thread in the background, performed the work that you had defined. Uh, you could get the input parameters that you give it. And in that, the doing background method that that class has, you implemented your background work and you delivered, you returned the result uh, once you were done. Like loading from a database. Why didn't people like that one? It was fine for the basic cases, but it also it, it didn't scale. Uh, it did one thing in the background, so you couldn't combine multiple stuff, and it wasn't what we call today reactive. So, for instance, if you loaded data from a database and the database, uh, the content of the database changed, uh, you didn't get a new response, a new new callback. You just got one single callback for every load. So if the, the underlying data was modified or changed, then you had yourself reloaded. So that was one of the drawbacks. Uh, well, I would say the main drawback with that one. Uh, the loaders that came later was so, tried to solve that one, but that was really hard to use. I'm glad I'm not the only one who, I, I thought maybe I was the only one who felt completely lost with that. <laughs> Because when I looked at those, I was like, huh, um, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been doing this for 10 years, and I still don't really understand how loaders work. Like, how do you start them, and how do you... No, I, I just gave up. And then when Rx Java came, I was like, okay, this is better. <laughs> do, let's do this. Okay, so after loaders came Rx Java. Yeah, I would say that. There was a in-between there where we had all sorts of things brewing. But uh, Rx Java was the thing that catched on strongly in the Android community. And it solves the problem with, you know, continuously feeding underlying data up to the user interface. Uh, but it also is a completely different concept of coding. And you don't, it's more about a stream of events. And uh, there's a lot of new concepts that people weren't used to. So in the beginning, me included, we messed up a lot of code. <laughs> With this, uh, so it took a time for the Android community as a whole to to learn about it, to understand how it worked, how you should use it. But reactive seems to be this this wave that's coming across all the platforms now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you you got your own version now in iOS with a uh, combine, I think it's called. Uh, yeah, combine and Swift UI are 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 very reactive in their in their design and nature. It just it it, it seems to be a, um, another programming style that addresses some of these issues but is it, it is a complete jump to the left oh yeah uh it's exactly so you're probably now ios developers will struggle with the same thing that we in android did for uh two three years so um good luck <laughs> yeah. well you're also you're also talking about the newest technologies that just dropped in the apple world which of course means they're probably not completely baked as of yet and it's going to be about a year before we really get something that's yeah that that's really meaty enough to 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 start living in yeah exactly we, we had the same thing with android when we when we first got rx java it was rx java 1 and uh, it, it worked for most of the time but there was some problems and um 
the maintainers uh, who developing RX Java, they noticed this, and we got an RX Java two, uh, which introduced a bunch of new concepts. And uh, I, I would say that most of the time it's it's the same. There was some new types and some new ways of dealing with what's called back pressure that you usually don't have to think about in an Android application. Very complicated stuff in the reactive streams world, I would say. But overall, the, the RX Java is most of the time it's good enough. So a lot of the libraries we have, even from Google, they hook into RX Java so you can have a database that once it's updated, it emits a new uh, event with the latest data. Uh, all of that works great. But it still uh, it still takes a lot of um, yeah it takes a lot of time to grasp the entire concept, and I still I know Android developers who just stay away from it because not because they themselves don't understand it, but they see that junior developers have a really hard time uh, working with it, and if you have uh, a small team where members come and go and a lot of juniors people coming in. Maybe your company is not a tech company by itself, and the app is just supporting your business. It's 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 not the right choice for you. Which takes us to today with Kotlin and coroutines. So let's talk about how coroutines differ from all the other systems. So coroutines is uh, actually it it predates both multi-threading and multi-processing. It's uh, I think the first paper was written in the sixties about this. Uh, it's basically a way to suspend the execution of a piece of code uh, and store that as a state machine, and then pick up another execution which has been stored as a state machine and start running that one, and then you swap these between them. So you can run coroutines on a single thread and do it asynchronously. But from a developer's perspective, with the Kotlin coroutines, it's basically just, we think it's still threads underneath. We just uh, simplified it. And the, it's easier to work with uh, on a basic level. You don't have to think about the operators and the reactive streams and all of those things that you have with Rx. Uh, so you still you can write code that is mostly looks procedural, which is easier to read and mostly for develop, uh, beginner developers. That's what I love looking at the coroutines is they look a lot more linear in the code and it's not it's an easier mental model. So you're not tracing your code from location to location yeah. um, and trying to imagine when is this code going to run. It looks a lot more straightforward on the page. Yep, absolutely. And I think that's uh, I think the, the, the goal, the long term goal for your code base should be that it should be easy to read for the next developer you don't know who that person is if they're junior or what that what kind of background they have uh, and if you throw something like rx on a bunch of junior developers they are going to mess up the code base because it's really hard to grasp it you throw rx on a bunch of advanced developers they're going to mess it up but that's just because it's <laughs> rx yes that is definitely true I, i'm i'm really interested to see how uh, the ios version of <laughs> rx will 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 work out <laughs> <laughs> Me too. that will be interesting <laughs> so when you're dealing with the coroutines how do you deal i i, I understand that you, know, you, you you sort of stop execution and start up a state machine for each section what about values that have to be shared between them how do you prevent that from getting trampled trampled on so 
I, I, I say that the, the fact that it is coroutines and that there is a state machine involved and suspended execution stuff, most of the developers don't need to think about those details. Those are underlying implementation details for this, uh, for Kotlin coroutines. I think the best analogy, a lot of developers come from the JavaScript world, whether they go to Android or iOS. Um, so they have some JavaScript uh, experience. So they know about the async await in JavaScript, or at least they know about promises. And if you use a, if you think about those uh, async await part in, uh, in JavaScript, and you say that this is basically the same thing from a high level perspective for the developer, uh, what Kotlin coroutines is. So you can do await inside a coroutine uh, on a deferred value, something that is loading in the background. And you want and you want to block the thread where you call this coroutine on. Uh, so so it's, it kind of works out that way. Uh, what you do, you still need to tell, like if you launch if you're loading data from the network, you still need to say that, okay, this coroutine has to run on the IO dispatcher, the IO threads. It's a thread thread pool created there. Uh, and then when you go back to the UI, you say, yeah, go back to the main thread here. So, but it's just you, you telling like, okay, this part here must happen on the main thread. This must happen on the background thread. And you can nest these. So it's, it still works out uh, from a readability perspective. Can you quickly go over promises just for our, 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 our novice listeners? Yeah, yeah. So of course, promises in JavaScript is basically uh, the easiest way. Since you, JavaScript is just a single threaded, uh, execution uh, when you run in the browser, uh, but you can still load things from the network. So when you call like fetch or the uh, one of these uh, a- APIs uh, that does something in the background and then delivers a result, uh, when you call f- the fetch function in JavaScript, you get a promise, a promise object, and the promise object will eventually return a response or an error. So if you do you if you you can add a callback, say this promise, when then this is done, then this will happen. So you can you can do it with function calls, or you can use the built-in uh, keywords uh, await on a, a promise, which will then, at that line, will wait until uh, it has completed. So it's a really, JavaScript has a really simple way of doing these background loadings, even though it's still just on a single thread. So it will just suspend that that piece of the JavaScript, that function that you just called, and then wait until it's done and then resume it. It looks really neat in code. So Promises was my first experience with code that really looked that way. Like, um, you know, do this, and then when it's done, run this block. Um, and how do coroutines compare to async await and C sharp? They're pretty similar there too, right? Yeah, exactly. So if you're used to C sharp, the async await there, it works pretty much the same. <laughs> Again, underneath uh, this is uh, this is coroutine, so there is a state machine involved and the suspending stuff. So it, underneath it works differently. Uh, in uh, in C sharp, I think it's implemented with threads and the mutex and stuff like that. So that makes sense. C sharp was my very first experience, and I always thought that pattern was superior for a long time until uh, now. Coroutines, I'm so excited that. Um, Android has such a fun tool. (laughs) Coming up in the second half, I will discuss getting started and growing as an Android developer. Thanks again to our sponsor, Triple Byte. That's Byte, B-Y-T-E. 
The Ray Wenderlich.com podcast will be right back. But first, a message from our sponsor. This RayWenderlich.com podcast is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on phone screens, take-home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your interest or your cover letters. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies, from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you get to go straight to the final interviews with the companies on their platform. It's like the common app for software engineers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. And I can appreciate that. Being in the industry for 35 years, I'm entirely self-taught. My undergraduate study was in theater, and I left school to do my first job. So I don't carry a bachelor's, no bachelor's of arts, no bachelor's of science. And that's the one thing I'm often trying to hide or misdirect on my resume. With TripleByte, they care more about the coding experience that I have and not worry about that one little fact. Apply now at triplebyte.com slash Ray. That's triplebyte.com, byte, B-Y-T-E, as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. And thanks again to Triple Byte for sponsoring this episode of the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. We're back in with Section 2, and Jen is going to be talking about how to ramp up as an Android developer and then how to grow your background as a developer. Jen, what have you got for us today? Today, I thought in light of your app evolution that it would be fun to talk about how to get started as an Android developer, um, regardless of your level of experience. So um, this is something I've given many workshops to just to get people started, and I teach an eight-week boot camp. And from there, they grow into experts. So I'm very active in Google developer group. And um, I like to teach Android and kind of specialize in the basics. (laughs) So what you're telling me is that I need to take an eight week trip out to Denver. I failed to mention the fact that my (laughs) iOS app that I talked about on a on the show with Mark Dalrymple came out, and the number one feature of the request I have is Android. And over the past week, I picked up a my first Android device, a Galaxy A6. There's a plug. Um, <laughs> and and I'm, I, I swear I'm going to have to buy a book on Android for idiots and morons because it's so completely foreign to me. But I, I enabled developer mode. I got that much done. I went through the first tutorial from, from Ray Wenderlich. And, and built a tap me app. Wonderful. Great. So you are off to a really good start because that is where most people, um, their first obstacle to getting started is actually installing the Android Studio and getting their first um, virtual device going or their first physical device. So it sounds like you've gotten through a lot of those first steps. Um, what I tell people when they're first installing Android Studio is don't give up. <laughs> and I've had a lot of people, <laughs> and that's nothing against the you know Android Studio itself because it's a it's a great tool and very often um, it goes off without a hitch. So the install goes very smoothly, everything's fine. 
Um, but there's very often that it doesn't. And um, part of it, it runs on everyone's operating system. So I've encountered people who get stuck because they have a very delicate, you know, Linux setup or something that's um, very customized and it's, uh, uh, you know, you have to, so I've known some people who have to, like, reinstall their OS or do whatever it takes to get it on there because, um, you know, Stack Overflow won't have your particular problem. The first pitfall I see people fall into is like, oh, well, that wouldn't run on my machine. And yeah. this goes for every platform. I, As a teacher, I teach three or four different platforms or, or three different platforms and um, many different languages. And I hear this no matter what, you know, uh, Visual Studio won't install, Android Studio won't install, Xcode won't install. Um, you have to make it install. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's funny that you mention it because my experience is pretty much the same from teaching. I've been teaching boot camps as well. Uh, I have a very interesting course which I give to like non-tech people. And it, it's it's the same there. It's interesting. So most of the beginners uh, that I teach, they use Windows still. They they have a Windows machine, so they can't bring in that one. And halfway through the course, they switch to a Mac. <laughs> I switched to Mac. I came to the college as a former C Sharp developer, and I was very Windows. I tend to wave a flag for whatever technologies I use. So I was Windows poster girl. I couldn't find my downloads on a Mac. I hadn't used a Mac since I was a graphic designer as a temp. <laughs> so I got a job as a temp um, typing as a graphic designer. And that's um, the only time I'd used a Mac. So like Quark Express. And and uh, I would encourage people to be open-minded and be cross-platform. I mean, that's the world we're living in today. Yeah. You know, we're, we like diversity. Um, so like, I think it hurts people to be very close-minded. Like I hate Windows. Or I hate Mac. And, you know, we all have things that we like or dislike. But um, if you exclude yourself from a platform, you're excluding yourself from tools. But uh, And I was doing that. I was a Windows only. I was kind of not wanting to use the Mac. Now it's my preference. I find Android Studio runs best on it. And I like to also use iOS. So I use Windows for C-sharp development solely these days. And um, I kind of like a Hackintosh with virtual machines for that anyway. <laughs> I, have a qu I have a question for you there. Do you use the JetBrains tool to write C Sharp? Any do you like the writer tool? I have not, and I'll have to explore that because I might prefer it. Um, I have used Mac Visual Studio um, for my beginner classes because they're just console programs. So until you start using Windows-centric libraries, I can use the Mac version of Visual Studio. So 95% of what I do now is on a Mac. And when students are shopping, they have a limited budget. So it's hard to tell them, you know, um, to go to that price point um, mm. when they can get quite a bit of Windows machine for cheaper or even a Chromebook, you know, that's kind of a fringe case, but yeah. Anyway, that's the first obstacle that many people get waysighted because they get really excited. I want to start programming. And Android in particular um, can be a little tricky that way and require a little patience, a little reading. And I also tell people, maybe I, maybe it's not true, but um, in my experience, about 10 or 15% of your job as a developer is going to be upgrading and learning how to deal with these tools. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So you are 
we're going to have, you know, maybe one day out of 10 is maybe too many. So maybe I should say 5%, but maybe one day a month, you're going to be reinstalling your environment or tweaking it or fighting with it or updating it. And these things happen. So um, a lot of times people get really angry. And <laughs> there's a really, there's a really good um, saying in one of the large tech companies, no, no names here. It's everything is either in beta or deprecated. <laughs> that is a great saying. I'll have to remember that because it's so true. You know, I always I always think about these people who are always updating their home their home theater systems or or messing with their cars. And I never thought about it because I just take it for granted that every couple of months I'm updating software or, or uh, operating system or i i just i don't think about it and and i know that probably my family uh, you know my wife everybody is always looking at me like well he's going to be messing with the computer again today and <laughs> yeah and every time i i've just gotten used to it because teaching you want to stay on the bleeding edge and so i re i install every you know all the new updates as soon as i can and I just count on opening my computer and probably a good half hour of updates every week or so. Every time I open something, whether it's Android Studio or Xcode or Visual Studio, there's oftentimes updates waiting for me anytime I start a task. <laughs> so that's another thing to just expect. Just expect it and you won't be upset. <laughs> I, I really wish there was like this background update thing going on in Android Studio sometimes because I mean, when they're going to update the virtual devices of the or whatever it is, so it could be a one gigabyte download and they're like, I don't want to do this now. <laughs> All right, so I got my Android Studio. I've got it downloaded. I've actually succeeded in that process, and I have done that. So where do we go next? One thing I recommend just for fun, or when I have a chance I like to show a class, is the virtual devices. You want to explore that. Although I think you were um, handy and got yourself a physical device. I started and with the virtual device. <laughs> They're a little, yeah, they, I don't think too many developers rely solely on the emulators, but one thing that is fun is to make the emulators call each other. So I have a link for the show notes because you can, um, you know, use Telnet ports and make them call each other. And that's always fun. And um, you can simulate incoming calls and texts. And so I would say play with that just to, um, and also it's fun to build your own devices in there just to see what's out there. You can look at the watch and so I like to play with the system images um, but once you're at that point you can run your first app then the next thing is to become familiar with the tools and we already talked about a lot of shortcut keys with um, Hottie but um, you know the ones you really need to remember I love the shift option a that he told us about the one quick key to look up other quick keys <laughs> I think it was one, so, one quick key to rule them all yeah, so I am loving knowing about that one. And before that, Alt Enter is that to me is like the not so much the uh, brake, but you know, to as a car analogy, that's the emergency brake. It's that important. Like Alt Enter is the one that you know is going to work in your critical situations. Um, and then there's Control Space for ba for basic code completion, and I've got some links for the show notes um, that are new, even since Hattie's show. Um, so I would say learn your way around Android Studio. I think it's an important thing you bring up there, the, the shortcut keys. So my experience with beginners like starting up is that they, they tend to stick to the mouse and 
uh, use the mouse for everything. Marking takes and then they just write the code there or they move around. They don't use the keyboard as much. And if there's one thing I see from like people who are efficient writing code is that they start early with only the key keyboard. And that's what I tell my students. Uh, I, I mean, I used to be a Emacs developer. I used Emacs solely for everything before I started with JetBrains tool. I, start, I used JetBrains since basically version two of their tool. And it makes a tremendous difference knowing the shortcut keys. Doesn't matter which editor you use, but if you know the shortcut keys, you're so much more efficient than using the mouse. I think that's something one should push for as well. In or nothing, I still do it. I I still use the mouse for too damn much. Yeah, but that's because you use Xcode, right? But other than that, there's a lot of shortcuts. Uh, I mean, Mac people tend to use a lot of shortcuts, I, I notice, because especially ones who know Photoshop. That's where the shortcut gurus live, is people, because Photoshop has, you know, five key combinations. <laughs> um, but I see a lot of beginners fall to the wayside because of frustration using the tool. And um, another thing I would suggest is learn to type. Um, Mavis Beacon teaches typing was a great program when I was young and it's still out there and there's lots of resources on the web but um, for aspiring developers learn how to type um, as people and also learn those shortcut keys because a lot of it is if you're having trouble putting text into the editor that can be fixed with practice which is the good news um, and you'll have so much more time to focus on, you know, efficiency, like you'll be efficient so you can focus on learning the actual concepts. So once you've got, you know, you're, you're at your keyboard, you're a keyboard master, you've got your Android studio going, you can move around in it efficiently. Um, then you want to start your first project. So, um, uh, the starting project wizard can be a little intimidating because you have to select from all the templates. And I tell people for the first time, just to do a basic activity or an empty activity. And then you're faced with having to name your application and um, the reverse domain identifier. And Xcode asks for a lot of the same things. So I'm sure Drew is very comfortable with that. Oh, yeah. You have to put in you know, your reverse domain um, how it's, that'll index your app in the Play Store. And now there, uh, there's a checkbox for instant apps. So if you make that mistake and click that box, you'll get a, a, a template that supports the instant apps, which are very cool, but not necessarily what yeah. beginners would want. <laughs> in, the, in that same setup, I think it's worth mentioning uh, the Android version, like min SDK version, like which, which would yes. be the minimum version. Is because I had I still have students and actually people online contacted me saying my app doesn't work or this doesn't work uh, because they put API version one because they want hundred percent coverage. So people are actually like they they don't understand what it means. A, uh, that number that you get there, like oh yeah, now you have this one. That's eighty three percent, but I want a hundred percent. And I'm really glad you mentioned that, and especially someone um, like Drew who's moving from the iOS world where there's such solid backwards compatibility. That is one of the major differences when you move from between Android and iOS is. You've got this Wild West ecosphere of all sorts of devices. I even have an old tablet that's running gingerbread that I bought on QVC. So I could be the most annoying Android user on the Play Store or one of, maybe not even the most, but there's a lot of little niche devices that still exist out there. 
Um, so you can't aspire to 100% and picking that min SDK um, can be difficult. So uh, my advice is there's a little link on there that says help me choose. And that's nice because you can see a bar graph of if I choose this version, it's this many, this much coverage. Um, and you really just want to think about the audience for your app. Is this, you know, new and trendy and I need to showcase the latest thing on the newest pixel? Or is this something more common that I want to work for people who bought, you know, a tablet on QVC 10 years ago? Well, I think there also is the question of, I need this specific OS feature. Yes, that's... That, that's got to play into it. I mean... Definitely. One of the, for, for example, the reason that I got my Galaxy wasn't because I necessarily needed to have an in-hand device, but my app requires location. Oh, yeah. And that's something that I understand that the emulators can fake but don't do very well. So if I need to do location, if I need to see it getting updates for location changes, I need a device in hand. But if location is something that's specifically in one SDK or the other, I can't just say, well, I'm going to go earlier to, to get my audience. I'm going to have to tell my audience, this is a major feature of my app. Therefore, you're going to have to be on this OS to use it. You know, if I'm if I'm writing some beautiful machine learning AR app, I'm 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 going to admit that we're not going back to to like g or h that that is a very that is exactly true because you need to target you know what's going to give you think of your app too what's the features what's going to meet your audience's needs um and it's always striking a balance so reaching perfection yeah. there isn't going to happen and that's uh, that can be frustrating to developers coming from another platform because mm -hmm. um, it's you know ipads from way back when are the same are pretty much the same yeah. Um, so that that always irks me a little bit. Like, what about those couple of users out there that I can't reach? <laughs> Jen, the community in Google alone makes it really less daunting to me as I'm trying to dive into this. And I'm really appreciating the idea that that a lot of the information is really right in front of me and I have access to it. And a lot of people who are are welcoming. Eric, I want to thank you for joining us because. Uh, I, I know how difficult asynchronous work is in any platform and to hear it from the Android side really was a lot of great information, both on the background, the history and where it's developing to Eric again. Thank you for joining us today. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's going to wrap things up for this episode of the Ray Wenderlich podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with uh, our almost last show of the season. We've got Gabrielle Peel coming on the show, and that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but until then, we want to thank Triple Byte for sponsoring this episode. And we're going to head back to the Emerald Castle. Ray, back to you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time. Thank you.